Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. This is from James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. These are the words of God. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for, the, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how direct it is and how it instructs us. Would you open our ears and our hearts to receive it by, by grace, through faith, and all by the power of your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As I mentioned last week, the plan is when, when I have the opportunity to preach, uh, we'll be working through, for the most part, working through the book of James. Last week, we did sort of an overview of the book of James, looking at the, the theme of um, the double-minded man. And we have in this passage before us the first place that this shows up. I want to draw your attention as by way of introduction to what James says in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, what is wisdom? Uh, in the English language, we use wisdom, generally speaking, most commonly to refer to the intellectual ability to make good and bad decisions or to make, uh, to make good decisions and to avoid making bad decisions. If we say that somebody is wise, they're able to discern what the right decision is in, in a particular moment, in a particular situation. That's typically how we generally understand this, uh, this concept of wisdom. Um, to the ancients and to the authors of the scriptures and really through much of history, wisdom was not merely intellectual. Actually, wisdom, the, the concept of wisdom was intimately tied to craftsmanship and skill. Uh, let me give you a couple examples of this. In Exodus and in 1 Kings, when the tabernacle, when Moses is, uh, when God gives Moses instructions to build the tabernacle, and then when he gives Solomon instructions to build the temple, um, God brings to Moses and Solomon and tells them to choose particular gifted artisans to whom God had given wisdom so that they would be skilled in constructing his tent and his house. Um, it's really striking if you look at those passages to see that God says that these men were gifted artisans and they were filled with the spirit of wisdom so that they were um, skilled in their labor in building the temple and the tabernacle. Wisdom was, part, this spirit of wisdom God gave them so that they would be skillful um, architects, skillful builders. Um, just one other example, in Ezra, we're told that Ezra was um, specifically given, um, God-given wisdom so that he was able to appoint appropriate magistrates as they're reestablishing the government of Jerusalem after the exile. But it's, it's very striking that the Lord says there that Ezra was, had, had a God-given spirit of wisdom, a God-given wisdom for the purpose of administrating in that setting. So wisdom, biblically speaking, is not merely intellectual. It's not merely the ability to discern between good and evil, although it includes that. But it's also related to particular skills. And this, I think, should inform how we read this passage in James. Because in this instance, James is urging Christians to practice and put into practice a skill 
that really is peculiar to Christians. It's a particular Christian skill that he is calling um, the believers that he's writing to to practice. And we're going to get into that in just a few moments. Uh, James writes to Christians that he loves. So remember at the beginning of the book, he says to 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Um, A few verses later in chapter 1, verse 16, we're told uh, James addresses them as my beloved brethren. Um, He seems to have, although we're not given particulars of James' relationship to these people, it seems that he does have some sort of knowledge of them where he calls them his beloved brethren. Um, And I think that um, it's quite possible considering also the fact that they are probably dispersed because of persecutions that's going, that are going on in and around Jerusalem, it's possible that many of those people actually were members of James' church at one point. Perhaps he was their elder and was uh, in, in charge of shepherding them, and then they flee to escape persecution. So now he's writing to them to encourage them as they are out um, running from authorities, um, seeking to establish the church elsewhere, but also um, escaping persecution. And in the face of more coming persecution. And so he, he writes to these Christians that he loves, and he opens his letter with an imperative um, concerning their persecution or any other trial that they may face. Okay, so the first thing that he, after he expresses his greeting to them, he begins his letter with an imperative. This is something that is um, very different from the way that Paul begins most of his letters, um, and even that Peter begins his letters. Uh, Paul is sort of a... Um, a standard way of operating for Paul in his letters is to begin by explaining a lot of doctrine, explaining the doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation, who God is, what we need to know, what we need to believe. And then he'll go from there to talking about the things that we need to do and give these imperatives and commands. James is very different. James says, hello, now count it all joy. And and we stop and think, well, that's, James, that's not a very nice way to start your letter. It's not very friendly. It's not very, um, it's not very considerate of the fact that we're undergoing persecution. I mean, he opens his letter with a direct command right in their face, knowing that they're undergoing persecution, knowing that they're undergoing chi- trials. And he says, hello, count it all joy. I think if we were to receive a letter like that, we would be a little bit offended. It's not very sensitive, James. They're to regard their trials, he says, as joy. Count it all joy. Regard, account for your trials as joy. Uh, Thomas Manton, in his commentary, refers to this as that they are to regard their trials as a matter of chief joy. With respect to persecution, particularly, if we have this context in mind, um, we can see here James echoing Jesus' own teaching in Matthew chapter 5. At the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus says to his disciples, uh, um, well, let's just turn there. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. This is the last of the Beatitudes, the last of the blessings that Jesus is Expressing, He says, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil things against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad 
For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus teaches his disciples that when you undergo persecution, when you undergo reviling or backbiting or slander for the sake of Jesus, um, our response ought to be one of rejoicing and being glad, which makes absolutely no sense in an, if we're thinking about this with earthly minds, if we're thinking about this with carnal minds, if we're thinking about this in terms of um, a simple equation on earth, if I'm being persecuted or reviled or slandered, there is nothing in me left to myself that wants to rejoice about that. But Jesus says that we are to rejoice. This is a particular skill, this is a particular gift of the Spirit that Christians are to cultivate. So James echoes this. He echoes this by saying that uh, in the context that he's writing to them, to count it all joy when you encounter various or when you fall into various trials. But James does not seem to limit his imperative simply to trials of persecution. In fact, he leaves it rather ambiguous and rather uh, the application being very wide by saying when you fall into various trials. Trials of all manner, um, big trials or little trials. Trials directly related to persecution for your faith or trials of um, your health. Things that don't have to do particularly with um, your presentation of the gospel. Um, trials that may be temporary and short-term or trials that are long-lasting. James lumps all of these together and he says, count it all joy whenever you encounter trials of any sort. Count it all joy. And this, of course, leads us to a question. Why does God require us to regard our trials of various kinds as joy? What does this mean and why does God, through James, require this of Christians? Uh, this does not mean, what James does not mean by this, is that we are required to always feel happy in the middle of our trials. I know this, I know this for certain, because to, if that is actually what James meant, it would be inconsistent with the person and character of Jesus. So that's not what James is arguing, right? Remember, Jesus grieved greatly when his dear friend Lazarus died, right? No persecution going on. Lazarus died, as far as we know, of natural causes, and Jesus wept, was greatly grieved when his dear friend Lazarus had died. So did Jesus count it all joy when someone very close to him passed away? Jesus was grieved, um, very, was um, overcome with much grief as he awaited his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, looking ahead to great persecution, the greatest persecution, the greatest trial that he would go through. He was overcome with grief and sorrow, pleading with God to remove that from him. Did Jesus count it all joy in the face of that trial? And scripture teaches us, I think, that we're, we are not required, uh, and we are not required, God does not require of us to be happy in the middle of our trials at all times. That's not what James is speaking about. But what does it mean then? What does it mean to count it all joy in the middle of trials? How and why are we to do this? Well, thankfully, James tells us. Turn back to um, James with me. 
James says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. There's a particular knowledge that enables Christians to actually count their trials as joy, to account for their trials as rejoicing in the Lord. Christians can count their trials as joy because we know that our trials are not meaningless. Um, Let me give you just a little bit of an analogy for this. Um, Earlier in the worship service, our wonderful air ducts, you you had that big kafunk, right? Many of us have gotten used to that. Maybe there's some visitors here who heard that and had no idea what was going on and thought the ceiling was going to fall in. That's what it sounds like is going to happen. If, you, if you're sitting right in the middle there where that sound comes from usually and you've not heard that before and you hear that sound, it would be totally natural for you to be very scared at the moment, right? The, the air ducts are just going to fall down on me. But if you have a knowledge that that's not what's going on and you understand that it's not going to, um, it's not going to be the end of you, then you're not scared in the same way. In fact, you might even not, at some point, after you have this knowledge of it and you're used to it, you might not even really understand it or regard it or notice it anymore. Okay? There's a certain kind of knowledge about the situation that brings peace. Do you see what I mean? Well, James is identifying a similar kind of thing here. In the midst of your trials, there's a particular kind of knowledge that enables you to count it as joy. There's a particular kind of knowledge that brings peace in the midst of those hard, painful trials. What is this knowledge? James says it's knowledge that the testing of your faith, the trying of your faith, produces patience. In the midst of grief and hardship, Christians know that those griefs and those hardships have a very specific purpose. They're not meaningless. They're not the product of time and chance. They're not the roll of the dice. They're actually perfectly tailored for you to produce patience. Trials of all sorts really do test our faith. But but we need to remember that all of these trials, God has designed, James tells us, to grow us up into maturity. Anytime you are faced with an inconvenience, a difficulty of any sort, a hardship, your faith in the sovereign Lord of all is being tested. You're being tested. Your faith is being tried. In this sense, our faith, our trust in the Father is like a muscle. It's a muscle that needs to be exercised. It's a muscle that um, needs to be pushed and stretched and probably torn a little. Right? That's what happens when you're exercising. The reason you feel sore, part of the reason you feel sore after you exercise is because your muscles have torn a little bit. Because God has designed our bodies in such a way that when we tear a little bit, we actually grow stronger. We grow. We build. We see this in all different sorts of ways in the natural world. Right, where God brings some sort of trial or symbol of destruction or symbol of death and uses that to produce life, to produce strength. A seed goes into the ground and in order for it to produce fruit, it must die. Um, when we are cooking, in order to deliver a beautiful, lovely, delicious meal, what do you have to do? 
You have to enter that meal typically under intense heat so that all the sugars and the proteins and the fats all break down. Why? So you can create something beautiful. We, are, uh, we, we adorn our tables with beautiful flowers. And how do we do that? By cutting them off. Right? The, the world that God has created is full, is teeming with this sort of, um, these, these analogies about how God grows things. How God prunes things. How he brings things up into maturity. This is what James means when he says, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Again, in English, um, sometimes we have, I think, a misunderstanding of what perfect means. We tend to think of perfect as um, clean and sparkly. That's not James' understanding of perfect. That's not what he means by that. Uh, Really, another way to translate this would be to... um, uh, to let patience um, have its maturing work, that you may be mature and complete, that you might be grown up, that you might be fulfilled. We are pushed, stretched, and perhaps a little torn as our Father grows us up and strengthens our faith. This testing of our faith produces um, in. Uh, Perhaps instead of patience, another way to translate this would be steadfastness. Patience here does not mean um, you're just sitting back and letting it hit you. You're, just, you're sitting back and, and, and trying to let it hit you without fussing. Just, I'm just going to let it go. No, it means steadfastness. It means you're standing up and standing strong and being taught how to stand in the midst of trials. This is why Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 tells us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. That you may be able to be steadfast in the face of trials and temptations. Your trials are what God is using to make you strong. To make you be able to stand. To be steadfast. Calvin called this fortitude of mind when bearing evils. We might also just simply call it faithfulness. Faithful submission to God in the midst of all things. James says that this work of producing steadfastness in the Christian has a culmination. It has an end in view. It has a final purpose. Again, it's not meaningless. God gives trials to those that he loves so that he might make them mature and complete. And this is the crazy part. Lacking nothing. When you're faced with trials, trials of various sorts, one of the things that makes them trials is the fact that you feel a lack. The fact that you feel like I don't have enough of X. Right? I don't have enough energy to get through the day. I don't have enough patience to deal with my children. I don't have enough love to to deal with my spouse. I don't have enough money to make it to the end of the month. I don't have enough health to get through this cancer, right? The trials that that we are faced with are there because of a lack of some sort. And God says that he has put those trials in place so that he can bring you to the point where you lack nothing. Those trials reveal a lack in you so that God can bring you to lack nothing. Isn't that wild? Samuel Rutherford said, why should I start 
at the plow of my Lord that maketh deep furrows on my soul. I know he is no idle husbandman. He purposeth a crop. Why, why if, I'm, if I know God, if I know who he is, if I know his goodness, why do I doubt when he brings those trials to me if I know that in bringing those trials, he is only going to bring an immense, beautiful, bountiful crop in me and in those around me. It's because we're sinners, because we have a sinful nature. That's why we doubt God. The question for the Christian facing a trial is, do you see God at work? Do you see him at work? And frankly, often we can't. Often we can't see God at work in the middle of the trial. And so, perhaps the question should rather be, can you trust that he is at work? If you can't see that he is at work, can you trust that he is at work? Can you trust that he is, in fact, good? That he has brought that trial to you perfectly, again, perfectly tailored for you. Perfectly structured to suit you in your lacks, in your immaturity, in the things that God needs you to grow in. And can you trust that he is at work? And that he is good? And that he is working all things together for your good right now? I think it's easy for us sometimes to think um, as good, reformed, Calvinistic Christians to think that, yes, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in the goodness of God. And I believe that he is going to work all things out together in the end. But do you believe that God is working all things out together for your good right now? That trial, that, that little tearing of your muscle is actually good now. Because think about this for a moment. If it's not, if, in, if in, at least at some level it's not good, then is God really in control? It's not just that. Uh, one uh, uh, famous passage to turn to in addressing this question is the end of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph is confronted by, by his brothers and they say, our father Jacob has died. Um, We've got that protection removed from us. Now, please, Joseph, um, be merciful to us. We know that we did wrong to you. We know that we treated you horribly, you know, by throwing you into a pit and leaving you for dead and selling you into slavery. Please be merciful to us. And and Joseph turns to his brothers, and um, sometimes we hear Joseph saying, um, you meant it for evil, but in the end, God really worked it all out for good. God took your evil and he kind of, you know, rode the wave and and ended up making it into this really wonderful thing where he saved a lot of people. That's not what Joseph actually says, though. Joseph says, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. It's not that God is up in heaven. There's all this evil that's going on in the world and he's, you know, spinning all the plates, making sure it turns out all right. Which perhaps would be one kind of sovereignty, but it's not real sovereignty. No, real sovereignty is when God says, Joseph's brothers are going to throw him into a pit. 
and I intended it. Joseph's brothers are going to sell him into slavery, and I intended it. Joseph is going to be falsely accused of sexual immorality and thrown into prison, and I intended it. And all of it for Joseph's good and for the good of my people. This is what the Bible teaches us. God meant it, planned it, intended it for good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in the middle of your trial? Do you believe that in the middle of whatever it is that is facing you, where God is revealing that lack in you? Do you believe that God is good? And that, that doesn't mean that the things that are happening around you are not, they, they may actually be evil. They may really be evil. But in some way, God has brought you to that place, has brought that place to you, and has said, I am intending this to grow you up into a perfect man, a perfect woman. Can you rejoice in his goodness? Now, James, we said, um, perhaps James is a little insensitive, we might think, right? Hello, um, by the way, count it all joy. But James knows that this is hard. James knows that this is humanly impossible, in fact. And so, James, while he gives this as a command, he also gives um, the path for help in this. James knows that it is something that we must grow up into. This is not something that comes naturally to us, to count it all joy in the face of all trials. It's something we must practice and be grown up into. James urges that if we lack wisdom, we should seek it from the Lord. This is why I wanted to begin by talking about wisdom. What is wisdom? Again, wisdom is not merely the intellectual ability to choose right and avoid choosing wrong, which is necessary and important in the face of trials, right? In the face of trials, I need wisdom to know I need to choose this and not this. I need to respond this way and not this way. But, but understand also that wisdom is skill. In this instance, James is urging us to cultivate or he's, he's addressing the fact that sometimes we lack the skill to see God's hand at work. We lack the skill to count it all joy. This is a, a practiced virtue, and we often aren't there yet. We often lack it. Wisdom is also, of course, tied to morality. In Proverbs, wisdom and the wise person and the foolish person are often contrasted. And fundamentally, most of the time, that's not a contrast. The contrast is not between somebody who is smart and somebody who's really dumb. The contrast is between somebody who is grounded in what God has said and somebody who is rejecting what God has said. Wisdom has a moral component as well. True wisdom is grounded in the worship of the one true God. This is why Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear or the worship, the service of God is the beginning of wisdom. Conversely, a rejection of God's words removes wisdom from even those we might think wise. 
A rejection of God, rejecting God's ways, removes wisdom. Uh, Jeremiah, the Lord says this to Jeremiah when Jeremiah is preaching to, uh, preaching about the coming destruction on Jerusalem. And God is talking about how he has removed the wise men from Jerusalem. He's removed wisdom from them because they have rejected him. When a people, when rulers, when individuals reject the knowledge of God, they become fools. They lose wisdom. They lose the moral component of wisdom in, in actually worshiping the Lord. They lose the ability to make right and wrong decisions. They lose the ability to practice a skill in their craft in any sort of way that glorifies God. Like, like Paul says in Romans, professing to be, to be wise, they are fools. But James calls us, when we see ourselves lacking wisdom, lacking wisdom and the skill to be able to count it joy in the midst of trials, James says to seek that wisdom from the Lord. We, should under, we could understand wisdom here as skill to bear afflictions. If any of you lacks the skill to bear these afflictions, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. And then James gives a promise. If you lack wisdom in the face of your trials, if you lack the skill to bear up under those trials, then go ask God, because he gives bountifully. And he does, and he gives in such a way with, without reproach. God doesn't grant wisdom thinking, man, you should really know better by now. No, he gives it to you without reproach because he's a good father. He gives it to you liberally. And James says, it will be given to you. Ask the father for this wisdom and it will be given to you. When you are beset by a trial... Again, and again, trials really come in all, all manner of ways. Small. They, they, can, be, they can be trials. Um, they can be the, the big, obvious trials. And we've had several um, births in our congregation recently where there's been a lot of trials related to that. A lot of time in the hospital for the babies. That's a real, big, obvious trial. Um, there are uh, members here that have long-term illnesses, long-term pain. That's an obvious big trial. But there's also little tiny trials, right? You're walking through the living room and you stub your toe. Or I'm walking around on my crutches and I, one, of, one of them lands on a Lego and it goes out, right? These are little trials. We can laugh at them. They're nothing in, compared to, in comparison to the big trials. But James doesn't care. He says, he says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Right? When, when, you're, um, when you drop something and it lands on your foot, do you count it all joy? And, and we tend to think, I don't really need to there because it's just a little thing. I've just got to let it go. No, James says, count it all joy. Practice it. Why? Because it's a skill. Because when those great trials come, have, have you been practicing this skill that God gives liberally? And so you drop something on your toe, and if any of you in that moment lacks wisdom to see God's hand in it, then ask God, and he'll give it to you liberally. Probably by having you drop it again. 
when you are beset with a trial, with any, any sort of trial, and you think you cannot handle it, when you cannot see God at work in it, then know that your faith is being tested. And when you feel like your faith is being tested to the limit, then James says, ask God for the skill to count a joy. Ask God for the skill to trust that he is at work for your good. God gives us trials. Again, the, the end goal of these trials is to bring us to maturity, to bring us to completion so that we lack nothing. And part of that maturation is actually teaching us to, to actually turn to him. Because so often we think we can just go on our merry way and handle things on our own. But, but again, just, I'm gonna, I don't know why I chose you know, dropping something on your foot. It, that's just the one that's sticking with me right now. You drop something on your foot, and if you can't count it all joy, then you lack that skill under trial. You lack that wisdom in that test. You failed the test. So you need to do it again. You need to seek the Lord and ask him for wisdom in the middle of that test. And, and again, knowing this is one of the graces that God gives to us as we go through trials. Because if you didn't know it was a test, right, you sit down, um, sometimes I, um, I give pop quizzes in my classes. I've got a couple of students here, you know what I'm talking about, right? And, and I come into the classroom, I say, take out a piece of paper. And everybody knows what that means, and they all start to panic, right? Because they haven't been studying, they haven't been reviewing their notes, they weren't really paying attention in class yesterday, and now they're all worried. But if I tell them, you have a quiz coming tomorrow, they study. Well, most of them study, right? They prepare. When, when there's a knowledge that there's a test coming, you prepare. You get ready for it. So all of you sitting in here now know that all of the tests and trials that are coming to you this week are a test. Are you preparing? That knowledge is a grace to you to prepare, to get ready for it. Are you preparing? And again, the test, God is testing us in part so that we learn to turn to him. I need to study. Where do I go? Turn to the Lord. Again, Thomas Manton said about this, God's wisdom suffereth the creatures to lack. God in his wisdom allows creatures, allows his people, his creatures to lack because dependence begetteth observance. If we were not forced to hang upon heaven and live upon the continued supplies of God, we would not care for him. Part of the reason that God brings you trials is to turn your attention to him. Because if you didn't realize that you had a lack, why would I need to turn to God? And so James urges that we ask wisdom of God who gives generously with the expectation that he will give it. Note that James does not urge us to ask that God remove the trial. Now, there's plenty of other places in Scripture that we can turn to that show us that it is appropriate at times to ask for that. We are to ask for healing. We are to ask for the removal of uh, obstacles in our life. We are to pray for peace. We're to ask, it is, it is appropriate and right, and we must 
take these things to the Lord and ask him to remove them in one sense. But at the same time, it is, it's fascinating that James doesn't tell us here, when you're beset by trials, turn to the Lord and ask him to take it away. No, he says, turn to the Lord, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, produces steadfastness. Why does he urge this? He urges that we ask God for the skill to faithfully endure the trial because coming through the trial means that we are maturing. Coming through the trial means that we are moving closer to that final goal that God has set for us. And James, as a faithful pastor, wants that for these people that he loves. He wants them to be drawn closer to God. And so he doesn't urge them to pray that God would take it away. Instead, he urges them to pray that God would give them wisdom and skill in the midst of that trial to act like Christians. James also says in verse, in verse 6 that we need to ask this in faith. Doubting God's handiwork and doubting God's goodness makes us double-minded. Right? Ask in faith, not doubting. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Doubting God's goodness, doubting God's work is like Peter when Jesus calls him out to him on the Sea of Galilee. And Peter walks out and he begins to walk on the water. And what does Peter do? He takes his eyes off of Jesus. Because he sees the waves and how great they are around him. He doubts. He begins to sink. He's tossed about by the waves. We're to ask God by faith, not doubting. Not doubting his work, not doubting his goodness, not doubting his timing. But if we do doubt those things, if we ask God for wisdom, for skill, and in our asking, we doubt God's goodness, we doubt God's work, we doubt God's timing, then James says, this is a, this is a, a heavy warning. James says in verse 7, He who doubts, let, let not that doubting man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. James urges that we ask for wisdom, but that wisdom must be asked for already resting in God. Already resting in his goodness. And if we ask in doubt, there's no promise that we will receive the wisdom that we're asking for. Now, James doesn't say that you won't receive it. God in his grace often gives far beyond what we can ask or imagine, right? We know that. But James says you should not expect to receive it. If you ask with doubt, doubting God, doubting who he is, doubting his goodness, don't, don't expect to receive that wisdom from him. When we doubt, we become like the waves themselves, tossed about by our trials. And so, James says, remain steadfast. Know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Stand and rest in God's goodness. Remain steadfast in simple obedience to God's word. Wonderful uh, 
saying that Jim Wilson used to say is, do not doubt in the, in the dark what you knew in the light. Do not doubt in the dark what you knew in the light. When you're in the light and you know God's goodness, you can see it. You can see his hand at work. Remember that when the days are dark. That's how you prepare for the test. You rest in God's goodness when you can see it clearly. And then when the days get dark, you remember what you saw in the light. Remain steadfast. Ask, seek, and knock, like Jesus says, in faith for this wisdom, for this skill to count it all joy, knowing that God is at work to make you steadfast and complete. And of course, by faith, remember that it is a skill that comes through practice, through more opportunities to count it all joy. If it is a skill, if this wisdom is a skill, and God is the one, he's the coach that is growing us up in this, and he's making you run suicides, and you're on the sideline throwing up because you've been running so much, what's a good coach going to do? Let's do it again. Because I'm going to make you a perfect team. I'm going to make you a complete team. I'm going to make you mature. If the Lord God, this is um, not to be... um, not to be profane or um, to put God lightly, but if he is your coach, he's so much more than that, but if he is your coach, and he's growing you up into maturity, he's going he's gonna to make you run the suicides, and he's going to make you run it again. Not because he's sadistic, not because he's capricious, because he loves you, and he knows what is going to grow you up to lack nothing. James' imperative... Uh, I want to conclude with this. James' imperative to count it all joy when we encounter various trials is grounded on two things. There's maybe a number of ways to come at this, but two things to focus on. Two things that this imperative rests on. And if you don't have these two things, then the imperative makes no sense. First, the first pillar is that God is sovereign. God is sovereignly good over all things. He is exhaustively sovereign. There is nothing that happens that is outside of his sovereignty, outside of his will, outside of, his, of what he has decreed will come to pass. He is at work in everything. Jesus tells us that he's at work even to the numbering of your hairs, even to, um, to when one, in Jesus' example, even to, when to one sparrow is taken and executed as a sacrifice in the temple and when one is let go. God is at work in all of those things. God is at work in every detail of your life. And this is a, this is a foundational pillar that we must rest on. Because of this, Christians can rest in his providence even when the circumstances are hard. If it is true that God is exhaustively sovereign and it is true that he is good and both of those things are true, then James can say, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Because as a Christian, you can rest in God's providence and in his goodness and in his control in the midst of the hardship. Secondly, Jesus Christ has already won. Jesus has won. There is no trial that undoes this gospel truth. 
And so do not let the evils and the hardships of this world take away your joy in Christ and in his victory. His victory over you. Jesus has already won. If you're his, you're his. He's won. It's done. It's complete. And if you're his, then none of the trials and temptations should undo the joy that you have in Christ. What can separate us from the love of Christ? But Jesus not only has won over you, he has also obtained victory over the world. Jesus has won. None of the evils of the world can undo that. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But I have overcome the world. Jesus has conquered sin and death. Christian joy comes from knowing that God is at work in us and in the world around us. To bring about and to consummate the victory of Christ. He's already obtained it. And Christian joy is one of the tools, one of the weapons that the Spirit uses to change the world. But he does it by first changing you. You're beset by trials. In the world you will have tribulation. God is at work through those in you. Do you see it? And we don't do this alone. Rather, we follow our Lord Jesus. Hebrews 12 tells us that we follow our Lord Jesus. He's gone before us. And he went to the cross. And he died for you, for all of your sins. And he bore the shame of the cross and the shame and the guilt of all of your sins on the cross. And we're told that he did this for the joy that was set before him. Jesus took all of the guilt and all of the shame of your sins and he carried it on the cross and he counted each of them, the pain from each of your sins that he was going to carry and he counted each of them as joy that he could carry it for you. And he did this knowing what the father had for him on the other side. And so, in all you're getting, as Solomon says, in all you're getting, get wisdom. In all you're getting, get wisdom to count it all joy in the face of whatever trial your heavenly Father sees, foot, sees fit to place in front of you. The big trials, the small trials, practice. Count it all joy, trusting in your Father, trusting in His goodness trusting in his sovereignty, trusting in the victory of Jesus. I want to close with one verse from Zechariah 13. The Lord says this of his people as he is going to, uh, to of the remnant after the, um, uh, they've been carried off into exile, of the remnant and what he is going to do with his people. The Lord says this, I will bring them through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this 
is my people. And each one will say, Yahweh is my God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, when left to ourselves, this command that you give to us through James is offensive. It is insensitive. But we know that it's not, and it shouldn't be, because we know that you are good. So teach us to count it all joy in the midst of all the trials that we know that you have set before us to walk in. Give us knowledge that the testing of our faith does produce steadfastness. And God, let that steadfastness have its perfect work to bring us to maturity and completion so that we would lack nothing. And as we face these trials, Lord, we know that we will lack wisdom. Teach us to ask of you, trusting that you do give liberally and without reproach, trusting that you will give us the wisdom and the skill to be able to count it all joy as you have asked us to. You do not ask of us anything that you will not give. Father, teach us to ask in faith with no doubting, trusting in you, trusting in your goodness, in your sovereignty, trusting in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's in his name that we pray. Amen.